This episode has to do with the likelihood of the incarnation. Uh, that is to say, with the likelihood that um, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, God himself uh, incarnated uh, and took on human form. This is obviously a doctrine of signal importance within Christianity. Some would say that it is the defining doctrine of Christianity, or at least of Christian orthodoxy. And yet, um, uh, many people have found reasons to doubt it. Um, for one thing, on its face, it you know it is it is a a miraculous claim. It's also somewhat difficult to make sense of, at least in its orthodox formulaic forms, which deny anything to the effect that Jesus was, say, 50% man and 50% God, but rather insists that he is holy God and holy man. As noted, uh, some critics find this claim merely unlikely, um, but others have gone farther, uh, like the philosopher John Hick, and suggested that the claim is about as plausible as drawing a square and saying that it's a circle. In other words, um, some critics of Christianity have denied that there is any meaningful sense in which God could be human at all. So um, what we should note at the outset is that criticisms of the form that um, the incarnation is unlikely that miracles in general are unlikely and should therefore not be seen as presumptively uh, true or factual. Um, these criticisms typically um, come from atheists or agnostics. Um, and then the other deeper criticisms saying that uh, God, because of his, say, Unitarian nature, uh, indeed even his divinely simple nature, or his um, ultimately inexpressible, ineffable, absolutely absolute nature, uh, he cannot become human. So one can imagine um, criticisms like these issuing from other religions, uh, specifically Judaism, Islam, and indeed certain forms of what might be called Christianity, um, some groups which may even identify themselves as Christian, but which see Jesus as having been human, um, and perhaps only later adopted as uh, a divine son of God, but, but never uh, fully God in the orthodox sense. For me, the motivation for doing this episode comes from having immersed myself um, in some of the apologetic arguments of uh, Muslims, uh, Jews for Judaism, uh, Biblical Unitarians, um, um, and especially from having immersed myself in a lot of the scholarly arguments from advocates of the so-called higher criticism um, as applied to New Testament studies. It seems to me that uh, these latter individuals um, like uh, Dale Martin and Bart Ehrman, for example, uh, frequently argue that Jesus existed, but that he never claimed to be divine, which, if true, would obviously have important implications for the likelihood of the incarnation, that is, uh, for the likelihood of whether or not he was divine. And other scholars, uh, for example, uh, Robert Price and Richard Carrier, claim that Jesus uh, likely never existed at all, which would also uh, have obvious implications for whether or not uh, he was God in human form. So um, listeners of this podcast might note that in effect, I've already done two or three episodes touching on these topics, uh, going back to maybe number 11, why I'm a Christian, uh, number 20, uh, examining Jesus divinity or some title to that effect. And then episode 31, which dealt with the atonement and which will become uh, more significant uh, later on in this episode. So it might be asked, why am I revisiting this territory? Uh, why do I feel the need to say something new here? 
in addition to what I've already said, because I will be rehashing some of what I've said before. Um, but the, the answer is that I don't think that I've done a good enough job um, of addressing the objections um, of these various critics. And I don't know if I'll have time to get to all of them within this episode. But in particular, right now I'm thinking about uh, the arguments that Jesus did not exist and the somewhat um, summary and unfair fashion in which I dismissed them in my uh, 20th episode. I just, I think, did some hand-waving and said that, you know, most scholars believe Jesus existed and, you know, Tacitus attests to Jesus' existence, and so does Josephus. Um, and I made the standard argument that if Jesus didn't exist, well, then maybe Socrates didn't exist, and maybe a whole host of characters from the ancient world didn't exist. So, um, I don't, I don't like that argument. And, and I think I even said at the time that I, I, I didn't like that argument, uh, in as much as it appeals to authority. Now, now technically, I mean, there is a sense in which, um, if you deny Jesus historical existence, um, that seems to be a somewhat more, uh, complex, hypothesis that is it's not as ideally simple as the one which says um that jesus existed because it seems like you have to posit multiple forgeries uh in order to account for the tacitus and josephus attestations i'm thinking here of uh mike jones uh from the inspiring philosophy uh youtube channel who said something to that effect in one of his um online conversations but uh, nonetheless, you know, when I look at uh, the work of someone like Richard Price, I think that um, he has some important points to make. Not all of it arguably makes sense. I mean, sometimes the sense one gets of Richard Price is that a little bit like the 9-11 conspiracy theorists, he sees one datum which uh, seems a little suspicious and then thereafter uh, looks with suspicion on every further uh, datum that he is presented with. He just reflexively doubts everything. And um, the result is like a highly skeptical conspiratorial attempt to account for the data, which ultimately doesn't feel all that uh, necessary or plausible. Nonetheless, he makes, you know, he, his arguments uh, that Jesus was a literary creation are, are not entirely without merit. And and uh, the same may be said for Richard Carrier. I'm not sure because I, I I'm less familiar with his work. But but Rich uh, but Price I I take seriously. So I'd like to offer um, a more substantive um, argument for Jesus' um, existence and uh, divinity um, than what I put forward in my previous episodes. So as a preliminary to making this argument, I want to make a few points that I made in my 31st episode about the atonement, um, specifically that the purpose of Jesus' advent, at least as far as I can see, uh, was most likely to set, to set up um, the ultimate moral example for us human beings. So in my 31st episode, I looked at the reasons why I felt that uh, the moral exemplar theory of the atonement was the one that made the most sense of the data. And, and this was for reasons like even supposedly objective theories of the atonement, like penal substitution, always seem to require subjective belief in the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, and so it's sort of strange to say that the mechanism of atonement is objective, but that the means whereby it is effective is exactly the same as what uh, it would be if... Um, the atonement were in fact subjective. You know, this is suspicious. And, you know, even where it's, it, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that there seems to be a sense in which um, all uh, atonement theories, uh, or at least all objective atonement theories, parasitize the moral exemplar theory. Um, because even where the point is uh, ostensibly not um, to behave in a certain way or exemplify a certain level of quote-unquote works righteousness. 
at the end of the day, it always seems like the ultimate point or purpose is to imitate Jesus. That the cash value um, of any theory of the atonement always ends up being, you know, the imitation of Christ. And this makes sense when you when you see the Gospels as you know stories at the center of a religion, i.e., stories with that are that are meant to um, possess maximum moral significance, or as Jordan Peterson might put it, maximum uh, behavioral significance, maximum implication for action. For example, in in Protestant circles, it's claimed that works don't save faith saves that if you have faith you can be certain of salvation but you know being whether or not you can be certain uh you have faith turns out to be tricky and works always ends up being uh an indispensable element for being able to know if you have faith so you know imitating christ um or as christ himself might have put it upholding the law doesn't seem to be something that you can factor out of the equation for very long. It's a term that always pops back up in some way or other. At the end of the day, it really seems to me as if um, the ultimate purpose um, of Jesus' advent was to set up um, the perfect moral example for human beings to follow, even where we try to pretend otherwise. So for more of those arguments, um, uh, please listen to my 31st episode. Um, it's, it's not lacking for arguments. It's, it's pretty long. But for now, before I set up my argument, I just want to say a little bit more about what I mean by saying that Jesus is the ultimate moral example, or is he, he is meant to be seen as the ultimate moral example. The Gospels present him as the ultimate moral example. Because on one level, this phrase might seem self-explanatory, but on another level, you might ask questions like, what does ultimate mean here exactly? And what does morality consist in? It's not helpful if I simply say that Jesus represents some ideal pattern of conduct, because the question that arises from an answer like that is what's the standard by which conduct is being measured here or in almost evolutionary terms or those which Jordan Peterson might use one might observe that the ideal pattern of conduct depends on what environment you're in so you know let's ask the question what environment are we in the environment is always changing. It should not be seen as a surprise that uh, for all their relative similarity to each other, uh, the heroes um, articulated in various cultures and mythologies are all somewhat different. And the figures who are um, idolized in each country and culture, I mean the real historical figures who are held up as heroes uh, in various countries and cultures, they're all somewhat different from each other, reflecting the fact that their patterns of conduct were ideal uh, in the different environments in which they played out, but um, where one culture might idealize uh, the peaceful teachings and example of the Buddha, another might uh, idealize Genghis Khan. And indeed, more searchingly, more metaphysically, um, the answer to the question of who represents the, you know, the ideal moral example for us to imitate depends very much on the nature of ultimate reality. Because some might say there is no law beyond that of natural selection, and therefore um, the best example to follow might be someone like Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great or some sort of fictive amalgam um, of all these hyper-dominant personalities. Uh, for example, uh, Nietzsche's Overman or uh, Nietzsche's prophet of the Overman, uh, Zarathustra. Or if there is no point to existence really, except to try to numb one's mind to suffering, then one might hold out the Buddha as the ultimate moral example, or at least a 
you know, depending on what one's particular interpretation of Buddhism was. But the point is that if life is at the end some kind of uh, nightmarish and purposeless um, existential farce, then um, imitating Mother Teresa doesn't necessarily seem the best way to go. It might uh, seem better to pursue a life of hedonism so that one uh, can have gotten some uh, enjoyment in uh, before the final uh, purposeless uh, pulling down of the curtain. So to reiterate my thesis here, I'm saying that the Gospels present Jesus as the ultimate moral example, but specifically, he is presented as the ideal pattern of conduct where the ultimate environment or selection principle or reality is understood to be love. That is, um, Christianity is, is notable among the world's religions for essentially positing a loving relationship as God and uh, saying in the New Testament that God is love and claiming essentially that ultimate reality slash God is love. So to, to make this point more clear, make this claim more clear, Jesus is held out as the ultimate moral example uh, where ultimate reality is understood as love. Another way to see this is to say that every value system has um, a sort of ideal exemplar thereof. Um, even if no such person actually existed, the idea of such a person exists conceptually as a sort of limit or natural logical terminus of that value system different cultures with different value systems end up articulating uh, different answers to the question of, you know, what is the ideal life? What is the, the ultimate moral example? But Christianity, with its insistence that the ultimate reality and selection principle is love, ends up saying that um, the ideal moral example to follow is this rabbi called Jesus. Now, here you might say, uh, I'm familiar with the Gospels, and I can think of more loving individuals uh, than Jesus or individuals who um, better illustrate you know, what a loving uh, life looks like. On some level, the claims that I'm going to make do not depend on whether or not Jesus satisfies everyone's conception of what the most loving life looks like. My point is just that the Gospels intend to portray Jesus in this light. I think that's all I need in order to make um, the argument that follows. Premise one, the purpose of Jesus, if you will, whether he was only a literary figment or he was historically real and divinely sent, uh, the purpose of Jesus uh, was to set the ultimate moral example. Premise two, if God himself were willing and were able to lead a human life for the purpose of morally edifying humanity, then that life would be the ultimate moral example. Premise three, if God were to become human, that would represent a miracle in the sense that it would certainly represent a suspension of the natural order of things. But premise four, if God valued the emulation of said example highly enough, then he might choose to realize this miracle for the same reason or reasons that he chooses to make any miracles real. So the last premise there contains an assumption that God performs miracles, that miracles happen, uh, which is a premise that obviously not everyone is going to accept. So it's appropriate that I say a few words here. Um, for my uh, most sustained argument within a single episode against materialism, you should listen to my 19th episode. 
I think that's called Jesus Divinity laying the groundwork. But right now I'm going to restrict uh, my remarks to Hume's famous argument against miracles, uh, which said that essentially when you're evaluating uh, the truth value of, of some claim that a miracle occurred, you should only believe that the miracle happened if the testimony attesting to the miracle being false is even less likely than that the miracle happened. He said, in other words, that some human telling a lie or otherwise being mistaken is always more likely uh, inductively than a true suspension of uh, the laws of nature. Therefore, in every given situation where we're evaluating whether or not a miracle happened, we should assume that it didn't on purely inductive grounds. This argument seems deep, but there's a way that it, it actually relies on a presumption of materialism for its full force, and um, it, it ends up being pretty weak once you expose this. So, so watch this. Suppose I said that every time you were about to buy a lottery ticket, it's more likely, vastly more likely, that you're going to lose than that you're going to win. Therefore, nobody can win the lottery ever. And every time someone claims to have won the lottery, we should just disbelieve them. So the fallacy involves moving from the improbability of a single event or events considered singly to saying that as a class, they can never occur at all. Whereas in reality, it would be an awful coincidence if there were no coincidences. Or put another way, it would be highly improbable that no improbable event should ever occur. There's a mistake here. Now, there's no problem if we assume in advance that miracles are impossible if, or, or that they're very unlikely. In other words, there's no problem if materialism is our presupposition. But um, if, like me, you find the arguments that I laid out in my 19th episode convincing, there's no reason to start with that assumption. And then suddenly Hume's whole argument is, is suspect. And really, you see this mistake being made all the time, uh, including by people who don't think they're making it. So I just listened to Bart Ehrman uh, in uh, the audiobook Jesus Interrupted claim that the, the, the methods of a historian, that is, the historical method, can never end up deducing that a miracle was the most likely explanation for some set of events. And Ehrman said, I'm not making any assumptions about materialism here. All I'm saying is that between a naturalistic explanation and a miraculous one, the naturalistic explanation is always more likely. So a, a historian always has to rank that higher than a miracle in terms of the list of likely explanations for some phenomenon. Who can spot the mistake here? It's in the premise that naturalistic explanations are always more likely. How do you know that, absent an assumption of naturalism? If you have a view, a view of the world in which miracles are possible, and you have some reason to suspect that a miracle was done, or is being done, or is about to be done, then it's not always necessarily the case that the naturalistic explanation is more likely. Suppose you're a person who regular, regularly receives true predictions from God in your dreams. Now, obviously, we're not familiar with uh, people like that, or at least I'm not. But suppose you were. Suppose for the sake of argument. Suppose you go to sleep and you get word from God that the next morning... Um, a pig is going to fly around in your backyard. And every time God has told you that a miracle was going to happen, it happened. The pig flying around in your backyard is going to represent a suspension of, you know, the laws of nature. That doesn't intrinsically mean that it's unlikely, especially given the track record that your dreams 
have had thus far, ex hypothesi, in, in, in predicting miracles. So I just wanted to take the opportunity here to really expose the, the fallacious and circular nature of, of, of these kinds of arguments. Because they claim not to be circular, and then you, you just examine them for a second, and then they, they totally are. So anyway, to make my own position more clear here, uh, when I look at um, a given claim that a miracle occurred, I do tend to doubt that it occurred. I've never seen one, but uh, that's that's for you know claims of miracles evaluated singly. When it comes to the question of whether or not a miracle has ever occurred, given my presuppositions that God exists and God is love and is active in his creation, I see no reason to doubt that any miracle has occurred ever. In fact, I think it would be unlikely if no miracles ever occurred. So the question is, which ones are most likely to have occurred? If we speculate on this question for a little bit, one answer that suggests itself is that um, which miracles are most likely to have occurred depends on what God's value system is. Why is God doing miracles? What's the purpose? Is it really because uh, it's the only way he knows of uh, securing certain outcomes? Or is he a sufficiently intelligent architect of world events that he can design things to go his way uh, with or without uh, suspensions of the natural order? I incline to think the latter. So what's the purpose of miracles? You know, as far as I can see, their purpose is to establish credibility, to make the beholder of the miracle believe God in what he's about to say and do. It's not so much the miracle itself. It's about building a relationship of trust. So as I said in a previous episode, yes, technically, if 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 the focus were just on securing certain outcomes, then God doesn't actually even need to perform miracles. He can just make people hallucinate uh, the miracle and they'll do what he wants them to do. But what, what happens when those people uh, pass on and hypothetically in the afterlife, sort of where all one's questions are answered, they learn that the miracle didn't actually happen? If the purpose of showing the miracle was to build a relationship of trust with the individual who witnessed the miracle, uh, telling a lie uh, seems counterproductive to that purpose. So, you know, earlier in, in, in my 20th episode, I asked, uh, why is it that God actually does miracles, assuming that he does, uh, rather than just make people hallucinate them? And I said, I didn't know because, because I don't. But it seems to me one possibility is that it is to cultivate um, a, a relationship of trust that does not exist only in this life, but it extends into the afterlife. So as, you, as you're about to see, this is um, a lot of what my argument hinges on. Uh, one might say, even if God really wanted us to imitate Christ, there's no reason he actually had to perform the miracle that the incarnation represents. He could get our imitation of Christ on the cheap, as it were. All he has to do is let certain misunderstandings arise um, from the ravings of a perhaps psychologically imbalanced um, first century Israelite. And then, you know, like magic, uh, these, these stories are going to sprout up around him and uh, everything's going to go God's way. No miracles required. He can just bank on the superstition of his creatures. Well, my question here is, does it really make sense to suppose that in this one instance, which is arguably the most consequential miracle in God's providential scheme, does it make sense that in this one instance, God would refrain from realizing the miracle, but still actually perform other miracles, the, the various miraculous healings that have been attested to in every religion, 
And yes, I do think they happen in every religion, uh, in every culture um, around the world. Uh, as I once framed it in my private notes, why would God perform everyone else's corny miracles, but refrain from performing the cool miracles of Christianity? Just to be clear, I think it's possible that he might. I'm not God. I can't read his mind, and I don't have a... a a crystal ball that allows me to see into the past. So I don't know, but I'm just saying if we make the assumption that God is love and he cares whether or not people imitate Christ and he does miracles, but he didn't perform the miracle of the incarnation. The result is clearly a little bit strange. See, just to be crystal clear, like if God were not love or equivalently, if God did not possess maximal love as one of his attributes and was instead a war god, a god whose value system revolved around conquest and the survival of the fittest, then I might understand uh, that uh, why he would refrain from performing the miracles central to Christianity, but would instead opt to realize certain other miracles like for example, having Genghis Khan be born of a virgin. But where God is understood to be love from first principles, from prior philosophical argumentation, which I've done plenty of times in my previous episodes, there seems motivation to believe that God would have realized a miracle whose outcome was getting humanity to, or I should say, there is plenty of motivation when you start out from the idea that God is love to believe that uh, God might have performed a miracle uh, whose outcome was to make generation after generation of humanity act out maximal love. Now, again, that's not the same as saying that I, I know that God performed that miracle. I'm only saying that the case for Jesus' divinity, and by implication also his existence, does not strike me as completely unmotivated or intellectually bankrupt. It seems to me, on the contrary, that those who confidently assert that uh, Jesus never existed or never claimed to be divine are guilty of a rather surprising level of epistemic arrogance because they seem to me uh, to be effectively claiming to know, to know that Jesus did not exist, to know that he did not claim to be divine, to know that he was not in fact divine, to know that miracles do not occur or never occur. Sometimes, like me, you know, they, they present their claims more as agnostic. And, you know, I'm fine with that. Very often, it, it seems like they're going beyond agnosticism and into confident uh, proclamations. And that's something which I myself am not comfortable doing, although perhaps uh, at times I sound like I'm making confident proclamations too. So maybe this is just, this is just the sort of error to which uh, humans naturally are prone. Uh, but in any case, that would be my response uh, to uh, the prices and carriers of the world, why I believe that Jesus likely existed despite the relative paucity of historical evidence attesting to his existence. My reasons uh, proceed from first principles and are not uh, wholly contingent at the end of the day on uh, sources like Josephus and Tacitus, um, or the Gospels for that matter. Nor, one might observe, are they dependent on the Gospels being inerrant or 100% factually true. Uh, they only require that something like the story described in the Gospels happened. So my thoughts so far have been less than linear, um, but that's that's usually the case with me. I've, I've been a little bit out of order. Um, but at this point, I want to take it 
back to premise two and, and look at the claim that if God were willing and able to become human for the purposes of morally edifying humanity, then the life lived by God in human form would perforce be the ultimate moral example. Because um, this argument will be important, uh, or this premise will be important, in arguing against those uh, who are not materialistic, who are rather theistic, but who hold to, say, radically unitarian conceptions of divinity which a priori rule out any possibility of incarnation. So I'm thinking here of Islam and Judaism and, and um, biblical Unitarianism. That is to say, uh, those Unitarian Christians who accept the New Testament, but who, like Socinus, view Jesus as having been a mortal man, albeit uh, one who was perhaps adopted uh, uh, at some point in his adult life, adopted as the Son of God, and thus uh, bearing some claim to the title of uh, divinity, but 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 not not the same claim as is put forward by the Nicene Creed, which says that you know Jesus pre-existed uh, his earthly incarnation, and that Jesus is fully human and fully God, etc. You'll note that the premise is conditional: if God were willing slash able to become human, or if there is any meaningful sense in which God could ever be said to be human, then the consequent would follow. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, as I see it, the ultimate moral example is one which, or is one of which, one cannot say that uh, God himself could have done better. It has to be an example which could not be equaled even by God. But as I conceive it, uh, leading uh, or living out the example of maximal love is something which, in its ultimate form at least, would require um, God's level of knowledge. Because to truly do as good a job as God, you would have to be able to factor in uh, the consequences and ramifications of even the smallest decisions. You would have to be taking into account um, the state of the entire universe. You would have to be taking into account uh, the whole future of human history and even the tiniest gestures, like the raising of an eyebrow or the flick of a finger. These should all ideally be calibrated in light of their uh, ramifications over the longest of time frames, which only God can do. God can give a prophet uh, a revelation from time to time. He may even give a prophet uh, some revelation word for word. But if someone were receiving divine inspiration, quote unquote, for every little thing that they said and did, such that there was a constant stream of it, I don't think one could meaningfully say of this person that they were not God in some very profound sense. So this is why I'm led to this conclusion. But, you know, I, I do a kind of theology which is different. Uh, my theology has been really influenced by, by Langan, uh, Chris Langan, the author of the CTMU. It's a more dynamic kind of uh, theology in which God himself has limits, albeit not externally placed limits, uh, self-imposed limits, or self-permitted limits, something like that. So classical theists would say that my God is more anthropomorphic, you know, about which uh, more in previous episodes. But, you know, what if I were trying to convince a theist who does the more classical thing of basically em embracing some list of adjectives um, and, and, and reasoning around those adjectives? How could I convince them of um, my premise that uh, the ultimate moral example is that which would be set by God uh, in human form, were he willing and able uh, to take on human form. Well, typically God has omnipotence. So on some level, if you say some human was able uh, to 
live out the ultimate moral example, uh, then you're committed to saying that even God and his omnipotence could not have done better uh, had he been human. Or if you say that God has maximal excellence, how can the example which would have been set by God excel the example of some hypothetical mere mortal if the example set by that uh, mere mortal is ostensibly equal to that which God himself could or would have set. So again, if the way you like to do theology is just by embracing some static list of predicates, uh, it, there's, there's, there's a problem in denying the consequent of my premise, at least where one affirms predicates, uh, divine predicates like uh, omniscience or, or omnipotence and maximal excellence. So, but now... It bears noting that everything that I've said so far has been conditional on the, the premise that God could possibly, in some meaningful sense, have become human. But there are many uh, who might claim that they have no idea what this could even mean. Remember, for example, uh, how John Hick said that Claiming that a man was God is like saying that a circle was square. What I wonder in this connection is whether someone like John Hick could have watched the movie Bruce Almighty, in which Morgan Freeman is depicted as God, and whether John Hick could have like even comprehended the premise of the movie, or if he would have just been completely baffled by it would large portions of the movie just have been unintelligible static to him would have he would he have had this total non-cognitivist breakdown in, in trying to watch the film bruce almighty or would he have understood the film's premise would he be, would he have understood the sense in which the film was portraying morgan freeman as god on one level it's not very hard to understand can you imagine having a conversation with God? Now, I'll grant you that if you have like one of the absolutely absolute borderline, I would argue actually impersonal conceptions of God um, that is favored in, classic, in classical Christian theism or in other religions, uh, some interpretations of Judaism, uh, some interpretations of Buddhism, then you might find it difficult to have a con you know to imagine having a conversation with God. Again, my conception of God is a bit more dynamic, or at least you might say one of the persons of the Trinity in my conception of God is is a bit more dynamic. The other person, if that's the right word, is every bit as unlimited as anyone else's conception of God. Uh, indeed, even more so. But again, that's 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 something I discussed in previous episodes. So anyway, just the question is, can you imagine having a conversation with God? If you can, uh, can you now imagine having that conversation with a person? In some sense, what it means to be God in human form is to do or is to say what God says and to perform actions as a matter of communicating some message. It's all communication, physical embodiment, and the actions performed while physically embodied are also, you know, communication or can be so understood. What is it that they say? Something like, what, 80% of conversation is nonverbal? I mean, one has no idea how people even arrive at such statistics. But, you know, something like that is obviously true. So now God is communicating you not with you not only with words but with body language. Is he numerically identical to the person that you're interacting with. No, he's not. But even classical Orthodox Christianity is not claiming that. That's, that's why the Trinity is all about the Father not being numerically identical to the Son and so forth. Put it like this. Imagine this. Uh, imagine that, that instead of interacting with a burning bush, you are interacting with a hologram 
fine, the critic might reply, but, you know, Christianity says Jesus is no mere hologram. That's, that's docetism. Uh, they say that Jesus is fully human as well as being fully God. Well, it's like, fine, instead of interacting with a hologram, imagine that you are interacting with a human being, but one who is still owned and controlled by God. One way of looking at this might be um, by introducing the distinction that's um, often made uh, in Christian theology and indeed, you know, other theologies between uh, God's positive will and his permissive will. His positive will is what God sort of directly, personally wants, and his permissive will is just what he allows us to do, even though that might not be in line with what he would ideally want us to do. So one would say that, one might say that what it means for some human to be meaningfully identified with God is that this human is doing all and only God's positive will. But, you know, uh, astute readers of the Bible will note that this is by itself not a sufficient condition because what about when God was hardening Pharaoh's heart and almost turning Pharaoh into a hand puppet? Pharaoh uh, wasn't meaningfully identifiable with God even when he was doing all and only what God wanted him to do. So it seems that another condition that we might want to add is that uh, the, the human in question should maximally resemble God, should instantiate God's values, be acting in a way that is maximally representative or consistent with God's ideal value system. And finally, a third, uh, a third condition that we might want to add is that this human being not be able um, to uphold or instantiate this pattern of conduct using drawing only on his own human resources that he should depend on God's resources in order to be able to do this. And as I suggested earlier, to sort of live out the ultimate moral example and factor in all of human history and the, the entire state of the universe at any given time, uh, this seems to require uh, con continual access to God's omniscience in a way that renders one... Uh, Hard to distinguish from God. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll use again the analogy of, of, of a video game. Um, if, you, if, you're, if you're playing a video game, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're playing as a character in the game. Are you the same as your character? It's like yes and no. For the purposes of the game, you, you are identified with the character, but you're not numerically identical to the character. But what it means for that character to be you is to be an expression or translation of your will and your mind into in, in some other medium. Now, where the analogy breaks down is in suggesting that it somehow requires God's full concentration um, to be Jesus, to, to plan out some uh, life uh, of 30 years within, you know, 4D human space-time. Maybe this requires almost zero cognitive effort on God's part. So I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to push that analogy too far. Nonetheless, I'm, I'm saying it, it just seems intuitive to me, even if the way that I've described it is not the way that it really was. It, it just seems intuitive to me that there could be some meaningful sense in which a human, you know, right here and right now could show up and be God. Like, should we really be so confident that this is not the case? You might raise interesting questions like, if Jesus is something like a, a human bo body used as something like a symbol for communicative purposes, what does the human body or nature of Jesus experience? I can't get uh, into too much detail here, but if you take the thesis of panpsychism serious, seriously. There seems to be a sense in which one can say of components of some system that they are conscious uh, in their own right. Like in panpsychic terms, you know, I'm a consciousness and in some sense my consciousness is a, is a composite or totality of uh, many neurons. But it 
there there seems to be some allowable sense within panpsychism in which one can say of the individual neurons themselves that they are conscious in their own right that they experience uh, a much more restricted informational existence at whatever level of scale you want to define them at that and that's really all i can say about that without getting into too much detail and and honestly thinking about that stuff sort of uh, pushes pushes the limits of my own intellect well as does virtually everything else i talk about in this podcast but to me it could make sense of, of things like you know why why if jesus is something like god's video game character why is he praying to god is he just play acting well no not not necessarily maybe certain subcomponents of the overall system have their own wills and desires which they might at times uh, communicate this raises the question how much informational integration if any what was there between uh jesus and god was the flow of information in either or both directions ever damped down or cut off or restricted as when jesus died on the cross these questions are certainly mysterious but but note that i don't think they're necessarily mysterious in some sense of uh asserting a contradiction i think in other words these questions might in principle have knowable answers but um at the end of the day you know i have to reemphasize or reiterate that that i'm i can ultimately only be agnostic on on the question of whether or not the incarnation occurred on whether or not the historical jesus of nazareth if indeed there was such a person uh, was and is god and if so in what sense this is you know just beyond my knowledge ultimately i can't claim to prove this as a matter of logical necessity but what i'm certainly uncomfortable with is 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 claiming to know that it was impossible my goodness again it seems like a unwarranted level of of epistemic arrogance and 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 i'll, I'll just i'll just leave it at that uh, maybe in the future my views will change so um this episode like its predecessors on this topic should also be seen as provisional but um i think that that might be enough for now um i wasn't able to prepare much for this episode so perhaps later uh something will occur to me and, and uh about about which i'll i'll think that you know, i i should have included it in the podcast but i think i'll just leave it here for now and um perhaps discuss things at greater length in the future thank you for listening